Uh, I want to tell you about uh, two guys for just a second that have been instrumental in my life, although I don't know either one of them very well. I've met both of them, but only briefly and in passing. But it's two pastors that have had great influence on me throughout my life. The first is a guy uh, named Tom Nelson. Uh, Tom Nelson is pastor of Denton Bible Church in Denton, Texas, a little town just north of Dallas, very north part of Texas. And when I was in high school and then later in college, I'm going to date myself here, my mother used to send me tapes of Tom Nelson preaching. And she'd send me little booklets with like his tapes and his series on different things. And so starting in probably college, I started to listen to Tom Nelson a lot. And he was an excellent Bible teacher and I enjoyed it. And I'd go through books of the Bible and I'd listen to these things. And he was always really, really helpful. Uh, Shortly after I graduated college, I actually ended up living in the Dallas area. I went to his church for a little while. And then right after that time, when I was working, at the time I was working in architecture as an intern architect, I used to sit and draw drawings and listen to Tom Nelson sermons. Because right after that, this new thing, the internet came out and you could listen to him online instead of cassette tapes. And so I was listening to his cassette, his uh, online sermons for probably a couple years. And so I listened to Tom Nelson hundreds of sermons while I would sit and draw. And so what I learned from this man is, one, exegetical preaching and teaching. He he handled God's word so well. He's a great preacher and teacher, helped me so much in my understanding of the Bible and how to read it and then how to teach it. And so just a great influence on my life. Uh, Actually, not long after I started here at Church of the Apostles, I sent him an email and just said, hey, I've listened to you for years and you've had a huge influence on me and now I'm a pastor and I too am seeking to preach God's word. And he immediately wrote me back. And said, you have made my day encouraging me. I'm adding you and Church of the Apostles to my prayer list. And I will be praying for your ministry and your church. And so Tom Nelson is just a guy that's in my life, even though I don't know him well, that I look to as kind of uh, someone who really helped me in a whole lot of ways. And so that's the first one. But then the second one's a guy named Sam Storms. And so Sam Storms and Tom Nelson, both mid-70s, I think now. Uh, Sam Storms is a pastor in Oklahoma City. And uh, he's part of our Acts 29 network. I think last time I checked, Sam Storms is the oldest pastor in our Acts 29 network of churches that want to plant churches that we're part of. And so he's kind of the elder statesman. Uh, I've met him on occasion a couple times. He was always very gracious and kind. But his influence on me really is his preaching and teaching, but more importantly, some of the books that he's written. He wrote a book called Kingdom Come about kind of end times and a whole lot of things and how to look at the Bible and some important things that have been really, really helpful in my life. And so I look to both of those guys, even though neither one of them, they wouldn't know me if they ran into me on the street, but I look at both of them as being very influential and helpful in my walk with the Lord. And now as a pastor and as a preacher and teacher, they had huge influence. So I say, okay, well, great. (laughs) That's great. Two guys that influenced you. What does that have to do with anything? Well, I tell you that, and I start there because I think of both of these men having wonderful ministries that love Jesus, that love God's word, that are excellent teachers and preachers that God has used in great ways, and they disagree sharply on what we're going to look at here at the end of Daniel chapter 9. They see verses 26 and 27 completely differently. Now, they both agree on verse 24 and the big idea of what we're going to look at. But the way that they come to these last couple of verses couldn't be further apart. And I'll even show you in a minute what I mean by that. And they see it completely differently. But they're both love the Lord. And they're both brilliant men who love God and love his word. 
And so for me, as someone who's kind of stood under or, or sat underneath both of them and their teaching and their influence for a long time, it's really humbling to come to this passage and go, these two guys I look at see it completely differently. And I see it in totally different ways. And suddenly that, to me, sparks a great humility of like, man, who am I to stand up and tell you exactly what this text says when these guys that are way smarter than me still struggle with what it says? And I say that at the very beginning because I want us, as we come to this passage, to really come with it with uh, great humility. Um, There's a lot of things here that are difficult to figure out exactly what they're talking about. And they've been debated for a long, long time by people much smarter than I. And so as we come to this text, what I want us to think about as we do is uh, what is God teaching us? But what's the big idea here? And I don't want us to get lost in the weeds, so to speak. I don't want us to begin to get so far down the road in these different things that are so debated. But I want us to hold fast to the things that are most important and do so with great humility. You know, so far in Daniel, I've said we've gotten to the second half of the book. Chapter 7, we really start into a lot of prophecy, future visions that God's giving Daniel. Uh, chapter 7 and chapter 8 that we've looked at, we see the rise and fall of nations and what God's doing. And when we looked at those two passages, we could see pretty clearly from history and looking at what's happening. You go, okay, well, this is what they're talking about. They're talking about, Ro- or, or they're talking about uh, the Romans and they're talking about the Medes and the Persians and they're talking about uh, Alexander the Great. We looked at that in chapter 8 and some things that are pretty clear. But you get to the end of chapter 9 And there's parts of it that are real clear, but there's parts that it's like, man, there's no clear consensus on what this is talking about and how it shakes out. And so I want us just to to come to it with that humility as we look at it. And so this is the way I want us to look at this passage today. First, I want us just to consider what is clear. What is the big idea that's pretty straightforward? Because I think there is some things here that are that way, that fall into that category. But then secondly, I want to show you what I think it's saying. And and I'll just, I'll lay my cards on the table. Sam Storms is kind of on one side and Tom Nelson's over here. I kind of stand in the line with Sam Storms. And it's just where, where I came from and theologically and some different things. I'm more on that end of things. But Sam Storms might be wrong. And I might be wrong (laughs) and Tom Nelson might be right or they both might be wrong and there might be something else that we're not sure that's happening here. And so I just want to continue to say that, that we come to these things with great humility. But I'm going to show you what I think, but I'm also going to show you why there's some debate in different areas. And then I want you to wrestle with that. I want you to continue to spend time in God's word and to seek him on that. But then lastly, we're going to end this way, that no matter what side or where you fall or where you see how these things shake out, I think there's some universal things that is true for all of us, no matter where you come out on these. And we'll end there today. So let's start with just kind of the more, uh, the clearer parts of what we're talking about. We get to verse 24 and Gabriel starts to give Daniel this prophecy And he's telling him, right? He says, therefore, consider the word and understand the vision. But we need to back up for just a second. If you weren't here with us last week, we looked at the first half of Daniel chapter 9, which is actually a prayer. Daniel is praying to God and he's seeking the Lord. And the occasion of which he is doing so is because he has been in exile for now 67, 68 years, somewhere in that range. It's been a long time that he has been in Babylon, his entire adult life. We saw Daniel started way back when he was about 15 in chapter 1, and now he's an old man that has lived his entire life in Babylon. But he had been reading the prophet Jeremiah, and he saw in Jeremiah that it said, this time of exile is going to last 70 years. 
And he's going, I've been in exile 68 years. God, is this almost over? Is it almost done? And that's the occasion with which he's praying to God and he's crying out to God and he's asking him if this is about to come to an end. But as he's doing so, he's doing so with great humility. He's saying, God, we don't deserve to be restored. We don't deserve for this to end. But because you are faithful and because of who you are, would you bring us back? Would you restore us to the land? Would you restore Jerusalem? And he's crying out to these things. You get a pretty good idea of all that he's praying there. If you look at verses 18 and 19 of chapter 9. He says, oh my God, incline your ear and hear. Open your eyes and see our desolations and the city that is called by your name. For we do not present our pleas before you because we are righteous, but because of your great mercy. Right. And so he's saying we don't deserve this, but because of who you are and because you're merciful, would you do this? And that's the occasion with which Daniel's praying and he's crying out to God. And so Gabriel comes and he says, your pleas have been heard. And Daniel, know that you are greatly loved. So hear what God's doing. And that's what we get. Right. So that's the setup to what he says in verse 24. But then look at what he says. Seventy weeks are decreed about your people and your holy city to finish the transgression to put an end to sin, to atone for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal both vision and profit, and to anoint a most holy place. And so he's praying and he's asking God about these 70 years. And he's saying, is it almost over? Right? It's the 70 years. It's what Jeremiah says. And he's reading that and he's contemplating that. And God comes to him and he gives him this answer. And he says... 70 weeks, which literally is 70 units of seven. That's what it says, 70 sevens. So he's saying, I'm asking about the 70 years. And God goes, great, I'm going to tell you about the 70 sevens. And it's kind of like in Matthew chapter 18, when Peter comes to Jesus and he says, when somebody has wronged us, how many times should we forgive them? You know that story? And he goes, should it be even seven times, Lord? And that's like Peter's way of saying a whole lot. And Jesus goes, no, it should be more like 70 times seven. And he kind of expands what he's thinking. He's like, no, 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 it's way bigger than that. And I think that's what's happening here at the beginning of verse 24. Daniel's going, is it 70 years or is it almost over? And God says, I want to tell you what's going to happen in 70 sevens. 70 times seven. Something much bigger than even what you're asking me. And so God comes to him and he starts that way and he tells him the 70 times 7 that this thing that's going to happen. So what's he talking about? What's this great thing that's going to happen in 70 times 7 rather than just 70 years? And he kind of expands the vision of the way he's thinking about it. And so you don't have to know anything about Daniel. You don't have to know anything about prophecy. You have not have to have studied this or really thought about all these things. But I want you just to think about this for just a second. This is not a trick question. What do you think he's talking about in verse 24? He says, this thing's coming and it's bigger, 70 times 7. And then he says, it's going to finish the transgression. It's going to put an end to sin. It's going to atone for iniquity. It's going to bring everlasting righteousness. It's going to seal both vision and profit and anoint a most holy place. Who is he talking about? Yeah, Jesus. It's not a trick. (laughs) It's pretty straightforward, actually. 
He says, God, when are you going to restore us? And when are you going to save us? And when are you going to set things right? And when are we going to get to go back to Jerusalem? And he's thinking of it in just this little sliver of time. In these 70 years, it's almost over. And God goes, I've got something way bigger, way bigger than you've ever considered. And there's one who's coming that's going to bring these things together. He's going to put an end to sin, right? So for Christ, uh, Romans 6 tells us, for one has died and we have been set free from sin, right? That we are now dead to sin and alive in Christ. He says he's going to atone for iniquity. Romans 3 says you are justified by grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as propitiation by his blood. Propitiation, the sacrifice that makes God favorable to us. Atonement, right at the heart of that. He's going to bring an everlasting righteousness. Romans 3.22, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. And you could keep going down the line. He's going to bring an end to both profit and vision. He's going to seal it up. What is that talking about? I, I think that happens to be about Hebrews chapter one, when it says God's spoken to us in many times, in many ways, through these, through all history, through the prophets and through these ways. But in these last days, he's spoken to us by his son, who is the exact imprint of the very nature of God. And so chapter Nine and verse 24 here, I think all of this is he's pointing to Jesus and he's saying one is coming that is going to do this work that is far greater than anything that you've ever considered. You're asking about 70 years. I'm telling you 70 times seven, something greater is coming. And I think that's the big idea of what's happening here. And it's the heart of this vision. And I want you to remember the context here. And it's so important when we read the Bible and we start to get into interpretation and how do we apply this? This is a vision that God is giving Daniel to a people that are in exile, that are in slavery, that are struggling with all the craziness of the world. And he's encouraging them. Daniel, you are well loved. And I want you to know this, that there is this thing that is happening and coming that is far greater than anything that you could imagine. And I think that's what he's telling him here and pointing him to. And I want you to think about even the context of what we've seen so far in chapter seven And in chapter eight, the two visions that God gives, he gives to Daniel. One has to do with rise and fall of four different nations. You see four beasts. And then we get to chapter eight and it's two, the goat and the ram, but it's the Medes and Persians. And then after them, the Greeks that are coming. But what God's been saying is you're in captivity and you're in Babylon now, but no, there's going to be a whole lot more Babylons that come after this. There's going to be rise and fall of nations. And God's been saying, I'm in control of all of this. And so in light of this, I think what he's saying is Daniel's going, are we going to be restored? Are we going back? And he's going, yes, you're going to be restored. But the ultimate restoration is going to be way bigger than just going back to a city in the Middle East at a certain time. It's something far greater than that. And what God's saying here is kind of the same thing that Jesus said all the way through his ministry. When people wanted to make it all about Jesus, we're going to come and take and make you king. Let's go overthrow the Romans. And Jesus would go, slow down. I'm here for something far greater than that. Jesus came and he knew he was always going to lay his life down. It wasn't just about that time and that place and overthrowing a temporal government, but it was about doing away with sin. Making atonement, setting us right with God, which is everything it's saying there in verse 24. And so I think that's the big idea of what he's talking about here. I think that's kind of the the straightforward part. 
This is about Jesus. And God's going to come and he's going to do this work. But then that opens the door to a whole lot of things that are hard to interpret. (laughs) There's a lot. There's a lot here that's difficult. Like even when you start there with the 70 weeks, 70 sevens. Well, what is the seven weeks? And is that years? Is that months? Is that days? 70 times seven, if it's years, that's 490 years. What do those years mean? And when will that happen? And when does that start? And what does that look like? There's whole lots of questions here, right? Suddenly you go, okay, well, how is this working? And what does that mean? 70 times seven. Most interpreters believe the seven weeks or seven units is seven years. And so 70 times 70 would be 490 years. And so he tells them 490 years, this thing's going to happen. And so what people have done down through the ages is they've looked at the different decrees that are given because Israel did get to go back. Actually, right after this in 538, Cyrus makes a decree that they can go back and rebuild the temple. A little while later in 458, there's another decree from Artaxerxes that they can go back and start to rebuild. And then in 445, there's a third wave that goes back. And so we go, well, is it 490 years from Cyrus's decree or the second decree or the, so you can start to see why there's lots and lots of questions and debates about this passage. You go, okay, well, when are they talking about and when does that happen and how, how does that play out? And so what people have done through the years is they've looked at those different decrees and they've lined up the 490 years and they go, look, perfectly lines up from 458 to when Jesus comes in the crucifixion and it's 490 years. And they do math to figure all that out and they point these things. And I would just say to all of that, when people start to get into all those numbers and all those things, I don't have a problem believing God does that perfectly, right? The God is the the alpha and the omega that knows the beginning from the end that sees every bit of history played out before him. Of course he can say in 490 years, this is going to happen. But there's a lot of numbers here that it's hard to make them line up just perfectly. Although there does seem to be some things that line up. And you go, wow, that's incredible. And it is incredible. Just a reminder that God is sovereign over all things. But what happens is I think sometimes we get lost in the numbers. And we start to make it all about this lining up and this. So I can wow you with the precision and point to those things. And I think sometimes when we do that, we miss a great big important point in the middle of this. And I think it's part of what God was saying to Daniel when he gave him this prophecy. And why he said 70 sevens, 70 units of seven. And why he used it in that way. And it goes back to Leviticus. If you know the book of Leviticus, it's the book that you stop your year through the Bible reading plan every year. You go, what in the world are they talking about? Right? Genesis, then Exodus, you have God saves the people out of slavery and brings them out. Gives them the Ten Commandments, begins to make them a people gives them plans for the tabernacle. That's the whole second half of Exodus, showing how they're going to worship. Leviticus kind of shows us how that works, what worship looks like, how they're supposed to operate. There's a lot of rules and laws and particular things that God gives for the people of Israel. And it's hard to read. There's a lot of stuff that's separated by time. It's difficult for us to get our head around. But there's a lot of important things in Leviticus. And one of the things in the book of Leviticus that goes along with God giving us the Sabbath that we're supposed to rest, we work six days and we rest, 
is that he said that with their crops, as an agrarian society, a farming society, every seven years let the land rest. That was part of the rule that God gave to them. Very practical wisdom, helpful, but also reinforces the idea of Sabbath. And so every seventh year, you let your land rest. But then every seventh seven, so 49 years, was what they called the Jubilee. It's the year of Jubilee. And the year of Jubilee was like a reset on everything to help take care of everybody. And it was this huge celebration. And so in those 49 years, in that time, if you kind of sold your land to somebody else or you got down on your luck and you said, hey, I'll go to work for you for the next five years to pay off my debt. And you start to make all these bargains within Israel. At the end of the 49th year, all those things reset. And it was a way to kind of take care of everybody. And God put that in place, right? So Leviticus chapter 25 says, you shall count seven times seven years so that the time of the seven weeks of years shall give you 49 years. Then you shall sound the loud trumpet on the 10th day of the seventh month. And on the day of atonement, you shall sound the trumpet throughout all the land and you shall consecrate the 50th year and proclaim liberty throughout the land to all its inhabitants. And it shall be a jubilee for you when each of you shall return to his property and each of you shall return to his clan. So on the seventh seven, 49th year, you proclaim the jubilee, you sound the trumpet and everybody goes back and it's this great celebration, this freedom that comes, right? Isaiah would talk about it in Isaiah chapter 61 and he would say it this way. The spirit of the Lord is upon me and because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor, he has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, to to and the opening of the prison to those who are bound and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Isaiah there is talking about the Jubilee and what that looks like. Proclaim favor of the Lord. Proclaim liberty to the captives. All these things that he says that are there, right? And so the seven times seven, the 49th year, you celebrate this thing. I think as God comes to Daniel, who knows the Old Testament so well, and he says, I want to tell you about the 70 times seven, that Daniel's mind would have immediately gone to the Jubilee year. Just that idea. Seven times seven, the 49th year. But it's like times 10. This is even better than the Jubilee year. And even look at the language he uses, right? Like it is better than the Jubilee year. In the 70th, 7th, we're going to put an end to sin, atone for iniquity, bring everlasting righteousness, seal both vision and profit. All the things that he's saying there. That does sound like 10 times better than even the Jubilee year. And so Luke chapter four, Jesus walks in to the synagogue and they ask him to read from the scroll. This is early in his ministry. And he walks in and he unrolls the scroll to Isaiah chapter 61. And he reads that about the Jubilee. The captives will go free. The liberty that's coming. He proclaims the year of the Lord's favor. And then he rolls it up and he gets done and he says, this has been fulfilled in your hearing. Everybody goes, what? He's saying, it's me. Now that I'm here, the ultimate uh, jubilee has come. And he applies it to himself. And he says, this is all about me. Because I have come to set the captives free. And think about what Jesus has come to do. He's come to save us from sin itself. He's come to make atonement that we can be reconciled to God. 
He's come to do a work that is so far greater than nations rising and falling. And that's giving you your eternal security with your father that you were created for. And so when Daniel gets this word that God says 70 times seven, this thing's going to happen in this one that's going to come. It may very well have been 490 years from 458 that aligns perfectly with the coming of Jesus and his resurrection. And I have no problem believing that. But I think there's an important point here. He's saying this is the ultimate jubilee. This is the thing that sets us free. This is the thing that you're waiting for. And this will give you a hope that will sustain you even in the rise and falls of nations. You're worried about when you get to go back to Jerusalem. I'm worried when, or God is concerned about bringing you to the heavenly Jerusalem. Bringing you to the fullness of everything he created you for. And I think that's what he's talking about here when he brings us to that. And so I think this whole prophecy is pointing us to Jesus. And what he's going to come and do. And so you get to verse 25. And if you look there, it talks about uh, that they know, therefore, and understand that from the going out of the word to restore and build Jerusalem to the coming of the anointed one. Right. There's going to be a word that goes out, whether it's Cyrus or Artaxerxes or whichever decree that we kind of line that up with. A decree is given and they go back and they rebuild the city and then Jesus comes. And then there's a whole lot of problems after that. And if you know your history, Jesus comes In his life, death, and resurrection, he warns his disciples. He says this multiple times in his earthly ministry. The destruction of Jerusalem is coming. It's going to be bad. And he's talking about the emperor Titus who comes and destroys Jerusalem in 70 AD. And he makes that so clear all the way through. And he's telling them that. And I think that's what this is talking about. There's going to be a restoration. And then there's going to be one who comes. And then there's going to be a lot of problems. And it's exactly what Jesus said. And so God's telling him about the timing of Jesus coming, that the anointed one will come to the nation and then there'll be a time of trouble. And then you get to verse 26 and it talks about the anointed one shall be cut off and have nothing. And the people of the prince who shall, who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary and its end shall come with a flood and to the end there shall be war and desolations are decreed. I think again, that's talking about Jesus. And the crucifixion coming, he's going to come and he's going to come in. The crucifixion's going to happen. And then after that, Jerusalem's going to be destroyed. And I think it's talking about Titus, the emperor that will come. It's the same fits with everything we've been looking at Daniel. He's been talking about these different things. Even if you go back to chapter eight, it says Medes and Persians are coming. And then after them is going to be the Greeks. The next one in line is the Romans. And here he's talking about the Romans and how they're going to destroy the temple. And then you get to verse 27. And this is one of those places where people diverge greatly on the way they think about this. Some people think 27 is restating again, talking about Jesus and Titus. I'm one of them. I would put myself in that place. That's what I think he's talking about. But there are some that think this is in the future. And yet there are some others that think it's um, about Jesus. That's where I would fit in that. There's some that think that it has to do with Titus. And then there's some that think it has to do with the future, depending on how you read 27. Right. So look at 27 for just a second with me. I'll show you what I mean. He says, and he shall make a strong covenant with the many for one week. And for a half a week, he shall put an end to the sacrifice and the offering. So who's the he? If 25 and 26 are talking about Jesus, then who's the he in verse 27? 
Some people would say it's Titus because he puts an end to the sacrifice by destroying the temple. Right? Which that makes some sense. I think it's Jesus because he puts an end to the sacrifice because he is the once and for all sacrifice that ends all sacrifices and it makes the temple obsolete. It's the whole book of Hebrews. Right? Hebrews chapter 7 says that so clearly, but even after that. And I think it's talking about Jesus. But then some people think it's future. They think it's actually talking about the Antichrist and the end times that will come. That the temple will be rebuilt, that it will be redone, and then there will be one that comes later that walks into the temple and proclaims his God and puts an end to the sacrifice and all these things that happen. And it's kind of vague and it's hard to understand exactly what that's talking about because it's so far in the future or it is yet still future. And so here's my point in saying that. You go, okay, great. You've just confused me on what it could be in different things. My man, Tom Nelson, that I love, thinks that it's talking about the future and the Antichrist in verse 27. So he sees a gap between verse 26 and 27 that's 2,000 plus years. Sam Storms, the other guy on this side, says they're both about Jesus. And Hebrew literature oftentimes restates the same thing over again in a different way. And I'm with him on that. I think that's more likely in my, but I want to say this so we're clear for all of us on this, but I don't know for sure. And anyone who tells you they know for sure, I go, slow down, right? Because there's a lot of hard things to get out here. This is probably, I think I'm safe to say this, maybe the most difficult passage to interpret in all the Bible. It has so many things at play here that I haven't even gotten into in so many different ways. It could be future. It could be talking about Jesus. There could be another interpretation that's somewhere in the middle. It could be both. It actually could be talking about Jesus because prophecy sometimes does this. It talks about a fulfillment and then another fulfillment. And that could be true. And so you go, well, what do we do with all of this? I thoroughly confuse you and then go, I'm not sure. Good luck. (laughs) Go read it yourself and try to figure it out. No, I think there's some really important things here that we can take away from it as we leave today. And one is I just want to remind you the way the text was intended. It's always important. Number one rule when we come to interpreting the Bible and getting at what the Bible says is like the context and who's writing and who are they writing to and what's it about? And this point here of what God is giving to Daniel in the context is he's reminding him, encouraging exiles in the middle of a crazy world. I am doing a work that you can't even fathom. You're asking about 70. I'm telling you 70 times seven. I'm telling you something that's so far greater than you've ever considered. And the point is to tell you that Jesus is coming and you can rest in what he's going to do in all times. And that's universal. And that doesn't matter if you think this is still future or you think it was fulfilled in Jesus. That is true on both of those. And that's good news. That's good news for all of us. And so I want to just continue to point you back to the truth of what he's saying. I mean, really stop and think about this for a second. Daniel in 580, whatever it was, 30, I'm sorry, 538, gets this word and it's telling him about Jesus. There is one that is coming that's going to put an end to sin and atone for iniquity that's going to bring an everlasting righteousness. And God in his great mercy tells him this. And so I want us to keep that right at the center of our focus. That's true no matter how you see this play out. 
that it stands that Jesus is right at the center of it and he is still God even in the midst of the rise and falls of any empire of which we're still living in. Still happening today. But the second thing, when we look at difficult texts like this, and we come to these and we wrestle with it, and this person says this, and this person teaches this, and we start to get... It's so important in all of this that we have humility. Humility is really good. It's a good thing. Humility is a really good thing because if we believe the gospel, we believe that we are far greater sinners than we ever even want to say. And that we are saved only by God's grace and nothing else. And that is humbling. So it's really good news. And so we should be humble people. We should have great humility in the way we come to these things. But then secondly, not only should we be humble and humility is good, but unity in Jesus is essential. And I love that there's guys like Tom Nelson. And I love that there's guys like Sam Storms. And I love that those guys can sit down and have vigorous debates and then get done and go, Jesus is king and we'll see when he comes back. And that's the way we should always be holding these things. Humility is good. Unity in Jesus is absolutely essential. But it's really hard to have that unity when we leave, uh, or we, it's hard to have that unity when we leave the humility out. And so it's so important that we continue to hold fast to that humility and see that it's all Jesus. But then lastly, I just want to remind you of God's providence and his goodness. Because at the very center of what God says here and what he shows us, right? Daniel's in the middle of a really difficult time. Then warring nations. And he's going, God, please restore us. And the word comes, Daniel, you are well loved. Please hear what I'm going to do. I am bringing one that's going to set everything right. And then in the midst of rise and fall of nations and craziness of the world, Jesus stands supreme. He is going to bring all of it together perfectly and fully, and we can trust him in that. Even when we go, I don't know how the details work out. There's parts that I don't understand, but I know Jesus is in control. And that's the point of what he's telling us. And so when we come to God's word and we come to those difficult passages, will we always see it that way with Jesus right at the very center and trusting him in it? So would you pray with me? God, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you have inspired these visions, that you have protected them, you have kept them for us. We thank you that there are difficult texts in the Bible that force us to just wrestle with you and to struggle with these things and continue to ask questions. I pray that it would not be a source of frustration, but it would be a source of just resting and that you are good and that you are sovereign, and that you are work in ways that we can't fully comprehend. And I pray that we would see that afresh today. I pray for each person here, wherever they are, and the things that they are dealing with, that you would remind them that you are Lord over all, that you are at work, that you have brought us forgiveness through what Jesus has done for us, and that that is secure and true in all times. And I pray that we would rest in that each and every day. We pray all these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen.